Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Our guest today is Mark Gilmore. He's an Igniting Change board member and a Virgin executive. Hi, Mark. Hi. How did you become involved with Igniting Change? Probably about eight years ago or so when I met Jane in Sydney and it was a wonderful meeting because I'd heard a lot about Jane before the meeting. What was said about her, presumably, by Richard Branson? An incredible person, achieved an incredible amount, and certainly I knew of Jane through um, Comic Relief and what she had achieved in the UK. But also, for somebody like Jane to have such a profound influence on our founder and the organisation, there had to be something very special. It's a respect which comes out in the fact that... Richard or whoever else is around you know, really listens to Jane's opinion and really values it and will check what Jane thinks. It's a level of thoughtfulness, intrigue and curiosity which goes way beyond. Richard has, has once said about the Virgin Group that what really makes it in, it's special is the insatiable curiosity of its people to make things better. And I think Jane displays that more than any person I've seen in my life. I hear from Jane that you were instrumental in establishing Igniting Change brand, for want of a better word. When we think of the essence of Igniting Change and what Jane and her team personify, Mm -hmm. it is truly about igniting change by combining extraordinary lives because Jane is a catalyst. Jane is a spark, whether it's a connection trip, a book, a podcast. You know, actually, are people thinking differently as a result of that? That is igniting change. How much of an influence has Jane had on you personally? Probably, I would say this genuinely whenever, more so than, than most other people in my lives. In my lives? How many lives do I have? Not sure. We can uh, talk about that too. Yeah, that's another subject <laughs> for sure. Um, I have had many, and I will continue to have many insecurities, many anxieties in life, but I think Jane has absolutely given me the confidence to be the true me. And that is a, you know, a, a gift which can't be repaid um, in, in any big, way. big, big statement. Yeah, and, and the, the reason I say that is because... The way she and her team look at the world is to, first of all, listen. You know, don't, don't do anything until you've really listened because we can all learn from listening. But secondly, respect the humanity of the individual no matter where people have come from and allow them to be themselves and allow them to flourish and to dream. And I think as a person who's you know, of privilege sitting here and in a, in a, uh, talking to you and, and, a, and a director of an organisation, I too have to, to listen and think about what impact that can make on me rather than thinking that all I can do is do good for other people. That's what Jane has really given to me. I, I, can go, I was at Port Phillip yesterday. 
you know, I can learn something from the lads in Port Phillip. Well, we definitely all can. We can all learn from each other. And I think it's been a, a huge lesson for me too about yeah. about not taking people or a situation at face value and, and labelling and judging. You, you raise a really good point about, you know, and this is my eyes have been open, just about the general biasness in society. You can't get rid of that. We, we, we have that layered on us and... There's some incredible studies by Harvard and places about that by the unconscious bias, which we all have um, in everyday life. When you walk by someone in the street, when you buy something in a shop, when you um, see someone on the television. But I think if we have somebody who comes in our lives, like Jane, who just sort of sparks uh, your eyes to be open to that, you maybe will think a bit differently in a situation. You'll maybe make a different decision in a business. And that's really important. Mm. So tell me a little bit more about Mark Gilmore. Where were you born and what sort of childhood did you have? Oh, this is where my many lives comes in. Yeah, exactly. So um, I was born in Canada. I was then brought up in the south coast of the UK, a lovely spot called Eastbourne near Brighton, and uh, then started my working career in London and then moved to Australia. So I have three passports, a man of many passports. What sort of upbringing was it? What kind of early life did you have? I came from a a large family. I have three older sisters with quite an age gap and and certainly a very supportive and and, and loving family, but one which was always about change and was all about either moving around or um, embracing new things. And I think that has led me to be a naturally curious person Mm -hmm. um, and really looking around and... Uh, and getting excited about new things. And I think I can be very, very grateful and thankful to my parents um, for that. It was an upbringing which sometimes I yearned for the, some of my friends who were led, led, led a very quiet life because we always had big discussions, sometimes arguments, sometimes you know, uh, you know, we were very loud. But I then sort of came to believe that actually there was no such thing as a, as a normal family upbringing because we are all unique and we all create our own family upbringings. And, and, and I think I was very lucky to, to, to realize that as well, that you know, my family was unique and I have a loving circle, but also I can, um, don't need to compare myself with anyone else. You went to school and did you go to university after that? I did. I, I went to an English, what they call public school, mm-hmm. which is not public. Yeah. Um, and Posh. Yes, um, and <laughs> <laughs> he says sighing. Um, and then I went to university. But actually, w- w- one of the most fundamental statements I remember about school, particularly as a as a man who is coming to terms with his sexuality about being gay, was the schooling environment was very rigid in mm-hmm. what its view was. And I remember being told once the reason for my school was to make me a man and that was what I had to be and to be made a man. Mm. And actually in an environment where people are coming to terms with their individualities in life and actually being what they want to be, that's a very harsh message message Mm. to Mm. be made but it had a very profound effect on me Mm. which at the time I didn't understand but later in life I realized the importance particularly at certain ages of allowing kids to to be themselves is incredibly important you know I was very late in coming out and I was very I thought it was the wrong thing to do Um, and that's shaped me a lot in my beliefs throughout my not only working career but personal life about the importance of being a people really being able to be themselves and I think bringing it back to Jane and her fundamental belief about see the person not the label 
I could not believe in anything more than that. Mm. I cannot believe in anything more than that. So how old were you when you came out? I was in my late 20s. Mm. Was, it a, was it cathartic? Uh, ultimately, at the start of that, it was bloody difficult. Yeah. Um, particularly as it was quite late. And, but um, it was, you know, and I'm a passionate believer that you go through adversity to get through positivity because you learn from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that experience hopefully has helped me shape many of my actions and decisions today. But um, yes, cathartic is a very good word for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, after university, what was your first job? I was very, very passionate about the airline business. And I always wanted to be a pilot. I don't know if many people know that. And I, I used to oh. always strive to be a pilot. And then my sister, she was an air stewardess. And I went on many trips with her. And I, I realized, actually, I probably bored silly. Um, so was I'd it before or after your sister had that job that you first latched on to pilot as the idea of your future? Um, before. I'd always been fanatical about aeroplanes and all sorts of things to do with the industry. I love travel. And I guess I thought being a pilot would mean just you were seeing the world and doing, yeah. doing nothing else. You'd, I forgot about you actually had to fly, to fly a plane in the meantime. Wearing a cool uniform. Wearing a cool hat. uniform and, and being hugely responsible. That was really, really my dream. And then, and then I sort of realized later on that, A, I probably didn't have the mm. left brain grades for that. I'm a very right brain person. And B, I could apply myself in different situations probably much more effectively. How did you start moving into this aviation So I left university. I did the usual thing of traveling around the world. Mm -hmm. I had my Lonely Planet Asia on a Shoestring Guide. Met many wonderful people. Ended Mm -hmm. up in Australia and spent some time here with my sister who was living here at the time. And then I went back to the UK. Where did you visit when you came to Australia? Compared with where where I I visited when I moved here, it was Mm. very restricted. I only really saw Brisbane and Sydney probably and that was about it so it was was very very pathetic of me actually well I guess when you look at it from the other side of the world and it's so big and I suppose Brisbane and Sydney would have seemed well they are quite close but again um, you did miss Melbourne I did miss Melbourne (laughs) 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 yeah and I think it's it's great but it's also a real shame if people think like that because there is another part of Australia and Mm. a very genuine real Australia um, and again, which I've been, uh, you know, opened up to through Igniting Change and about um, the Indigenous people mm. and which is just not to be missed. It's, it's something which is transformative. So I think that was to come later for me. So then you got a job. Then I went back to the UK because I became a corporate dealer. Uh-huh. in the UK uh-huh. and I sat in front of a Reuters screen and I was plonked in and I was uh, my taxis were paid for work and I had uh, newspapers delivered to me and it was great money and I sat in front of a Reuters screen for a, a week and I remember phoning up my boss a week later I was week into the job and said I'm not coming back in <laughs> I hated every minute of it yeah. it was just not for me and I then um, became a check-in agent for British Airways and was it love and it was the most amazing 18 months of my life uh, I was it was around the Gulf War time actually so it was quite tumultuous in terms of air travel mm-hmm. but the team the people who I saw and you know I used to always say I would probably see every part of the world in terms of people walking through the airport and and uh, and meeting them so, so it was, it was really meant to be wasn't it? it was totally meant to be so 18 months doing that and then and then I had a career at um, British Airways for, for nine years which I probably shouldn't talk much about in, in as I'm a virgin executive now that's okay um, everyone's even, got a past everyone's got a past and Richard Joke 
jokes about it as well, mm. so it's fine. But um, it was a, a very, very good stomping ground for me, and I could work in many parts of the organization. So when you left there, what was your position? I was working in the advertising, so it was, we were mm. just launching a big, big announcement about our alliance partners. And um, after nine years, I was ready for a move. Mm-hmm. I was also, I uh, tried the entrepreneurial part of my life there to set up a restaurant and um, I soon realized after a few months into that after I'd given up my job that it probably was the riskiest thing I've ever done in my life so I decided not to. Wow. Yes. So you went from BA to Virgin? No I had had a few stepping stones I then became a consultant I worked for a telecoms organization I then gave up my job and thought you know what, I'd love to live in Australia and I was lucky enough to be able to through my sister who's who's a citizen here who sponsored me and um, then I came out here and I got the job with Virgin. So what year was that? 2005. How long had Virgin been around in Australia for then? It had launched, um, well it had a Virgin Megastores and Virgin Mobile and then the airline so it, was, it had been around for, for nearly 10 years by mm-hmm. that stage. Was it exciting? It really played to all the things I valued about life from curiosity to really being creative and thinking about new ideas, but also connecting with people. People businesses really drive me and thinking about that. So um, to join an organization which was like that and coming from the UK and growing up in the Richard Branson Virgin Records to Virgin Atlantic years, Mm. um, it felt... And going back to this whole notion of being yourself, it it actually truly was a place and it was... it was the first time in a work environment I could be open, for instance, about my sexuality, which is a pretty telling sign. Mm. Um, I was sort of reticent about that, but Virgin really just w- was fine about that. But it was, you, you, you just felt anything could be possible. Anything is possible. When you first met Richard Branson, what about him was different from other executives that you come across? As you were saying before about uh, the way Jane listens, is that something that Richard Branson had in common with Jane? Can you see why they are still, after all these years, connected? 100%. Mm. I remember being very struck and and when Richard uh, used to come, he still does come to Australia, but when I used to meet him, the first thing he would do was not come straight to you and go off in the car, would go straight and talk to the, the employees. Mm. So it was the, whether it was the check-in staff or wh- whoever, and just have a conversation there because that's who he got you know, his energy from and his insight and just by listening to what was really going on. And that just struck me as, as a very Jane quality as well. That's mm. different. That's somebody who's really genuinely interested. Mm. Um, and I think marrying up with that, which is definitely a, a thing I was probably surprised, but in a pleasant way, how, and this, this is a very uh, interesting word to use about, about Richard, is, is how normal mm. he is. You know, he, he, he truly is somebody, what, what you see on stage or yep. the TV is, is what you get. So he's managed to do that rare thing of, of having extreme wealth and privilege and, and yet keeping it pretty well in check. Without a doubt. Mm. And I think it's this quality of always listening and making sure you're listening to a cross-section of people, but particularly those at the fringes and the edges. How long have you been on the board of Igniting Change? Probably about five Five years now. What's it been like working with the people that you've worked with on the Igniting Change Board? There are so many words which come to mind. Mm. Um, and the, the one which 
actually is is the one which I just want to say is joy. It's a collection of extraordinary people mm. that you can always learn from. And the subject matters is quite interesting. And I think the word paradox is very relevant here is, is very gritty sometimes. But there's always a, a, a feeling of hope about it. Mm. It's never despair. It's always about how, you know, creating positivity and opportunity out of it. So now you're living in New York. It must be slightly surreal to be in a place like that and talking about issues of youth homelessness in Melbourne or farmers doing it tough? Well, it's slightly surreal as well because occasionally it's two o'clock in the morning on a board call <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my pot of tea and my pyjamas and, yeah. um, and people are having their flat whites in the sun here. So it does feel very surreal. But yes and no, while the names and some of the situations may be slightly different, the issues are very much the same. I live in New York, which probably has more billionaires per square foot than anywhere else yet the social and systemic issues are every bit the same as what are going on Mm. uh, in in Australia just maybe just slightly different nuances to it and I think that's one of the greatest things is that from a a tiny organization which runs on the smell of an oily rag as Jane would say here there's still so much to be learned and applied to other situations around the world. Are you proud of your association with Igniting Change? I'm incredibly proud by it. I'm incredibly privileged and not only the, the people around the table and to think that my opinions are listened to, but also how it, I'm, it's able to open my eyes and, and really help me in my business and personal life as well. I ask everyone on the podcast, what's the one thing that Igniting Change has taught you? I've talked about listening a lot and I think I would a high level order on that is humility because to really be humble and live with humility in my view you have to listen a lot you have to respect and you have to um, whoever you meet understand that you know how can I work with you but also how can I change positively as a result of that and that's, that's something which I, I probably never realised as much in life. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.